tyranny was broken by the sins of the father, and his shepherds finally ceased to roam, seeking instead the simple peace found in the comfort of heart and home. All eyes now turn to his heir and son, who forged their home with his power. Will he be strong enough to lead them in this, their darkest hour? Welcome back to The Lost Tribe, Darkest Hour. As always, I am the author and your humble narrator, Peter Ivey. This week I'll be reading chapters 3, 4, and 5. If you are enjoying this podcast, please follow and subscribe to help me keep bringing the story to you. Thanks for listening, and let's begin. Chapter 3 The trip back to home was instantaneous. I appeared in front of the gates to hearth, which consisted of a heavy pair of tall stone towers, of well-fitted stone blocks festooned with blossoming creeper vines, and a heavy iron gate in between them. The citadel itself sat on a high hill, so this was the only way for anyone to enter it without having the advantages of my people, such as Henry's flying machines, or my power to fly. Flynn's power now, too, I suppose. Casey had added the creeper vines after a few guests from the worlds had complained that the entrance looked a little too grim, and not very welcoming. I would have added gargoyles as well, but again, too foreboding and not high on cheer. The iron gates opened as I walked up to it, and I made my way through. On the other side were the wide, winding stairs that led to hearth. I heard a chuckle not unlike my own, and saw my father lean against the stone banister on the next turn. My father had aged well since coming to hearth. I had actually stopped the ticking clock that would have marched him to his death in an attempt to pay him back for all he had done for me. He still smoked like a bastard, though, as if he knew it wouldn't kill him. I never told him that I'd effectively let him live in this good moment here for the rest of his days. Some day, he would ask me the hows and whys, and I'd have to tell him. For now, I was just happy to have my father by my side. He stood there in his tweed coat and black trousers, watching me come up the step. Hello, da. Mickey, he acknowledged, taking a long draw off of his pipe. Waiting for me, were you? Aye. I figured it'd be along, and me knees are woeful for the journey back up. Do tell me that. Why in the names of all things, good and great, did you put the damn stones up yonder, so far up yonder? To vex you, of course, da. Yeah? No. I just enjoy the view from up there. Dad laughed and shook his head. I, who wouldn't? I reached out my hand. Ready to go? He tapped out his pipe on the banister and took my hand. His grip was strong. At your leisure, lad. I lifted off from the stairway taking hold of my father by the waist as he ascended towards hearth. I fashioned it to be just like the castles I saw in pictures from old books. Avalon had many legends, and all of us in pretty knew them well. The one I was trying to emulate was called Camellia, where a great king called Erther summoned his anointed magical knights to sit with him to govern ancient Avalon. Camellia had a great hall where the knights would assemble, and so did hearth. I created many towers to add to the environs of the citadel, and many chambers within for visitors and family. There was a garden where I fashioned the statues of those who had died preserving the worlds. Otomo and Apostos were both honored there among the blossoms. Our family had the tower closest to the Great Hall, and could be entered from a balcony that looked west onto the forests and mountains beyond the fields. As we rose to the family tower, I saw a form running up the inside of the tower, passing by each window rapidly as we ascended. I looked back to my father to see if he had seen that as well. He winked at me and smiled. Are you ready? We landed on the balcony. The shutters were open wide as the sun had not yet set. I returned my warrior's garb and my sword to a chamber deep in the citadel. I let out the breath that I seemed to have been holding in since New Haven. Oh, it felt so good to be home. 
Here he comes, Dad said, his head cocked towards the room within. Flynn came running out of the room, his wooden sword in hand. His aging was accelerated more these days, and his dark brown hair had grown down past his shoulders. His emerald eyes caught the setting sun. I could see the immortality of our people within them. Within the glittering of the tomorrows he would see. Perhaps we might see it together. He was wearing his first pair of jeans, and a buttoned white shirt that had seen better days in a purer shade. He leapt forward and struck a sideways pose that he must have seen by either me or Casey. One hand held out behind him and his sword pointed toward us. He winked at Dad. Your money or your life, he quipped. Dad put up his hands and box surrender. I quickly followed suit. I have a feeling this is some kind of setup. Flynn edged up closer and put the tip of his sword at my throat. Sorry, son. Yet our boy was terribly convincing. It's okay, Dad. I know a good deal when I see one. I reached inside my shirt and summoned a small sack of coins legal in Caledon to my grasp and tossed it to the balcony floor. I stood up and ruffled Flynn's shirt as he gathered up the small sack from the floor. That should provide you both with enough to enjoy a Caledon City's market tomorrow while I'm enjoying this interview. Thanks, Dad, Flynn said, trying to smooth out his hair. <laughs> You're welcome, son. Any idea where your mother is? Flynn tucked the sack into his pocket and stuck the wooden sword under his belt. He smiled and took off ahead, and we followed. We walked across the first level, which was only for observation, and didn't have much in the way of amenities. We reached the spiral staircase that led down into the apartments. She's down at the hearth with that old man from New Haven, he said. <laughs> That's Hark, old Flynn. He's my eyes and ears on that world. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have known that anything bad was going on. He's a good man. Did you stop the war? I smiled. The kid had good ears, even if he forgot a detail or two. You could say that. I doubt they'll be hurting each other anytime soon. Flynn's eyes went wide and he stopped on the stairs. Did you... Did you kill them? I put my hand on his shoulder and looked into his eyes. Flynn. That's the last thing I would ever want to do. People with our kind of power shouldn't use it to hurt people who don't have the same advantage. That's what we all fought so hard to stop. Do you remember what I told you about the people we fought before you were born? He nodded. Those people that I went to stop today were just like the people in the kingdom. They wanted to put themselves above everyone else using fear and violence. They were also going to let a whole bunch of people get hurt to do that. Bad people do that, Flynn. So how, how would you stop them? I took away their ability to hurt each other. I formed the image of Emperor Leopold with a foam baton dueling with President Ferris and made it appear on a bubble floating in my hand. Flynn burst out laughing and my dad rolled his eyes. I dismissed it. <laughs> Go on ahead and find your mom, son. Flynn smiled and took off down the stairs. We kept on walking past the landing that led into our apartments, and on further to the Great Hall. You're getting very fancy with your powers. You disapprove? Nah, Mickey. I figure you know what you're doing. All I'd say is something you'd already know. And that would be? Dad shook his head. People are people, boy. We're meant for doing things that people have been doing for centuries. Fighting, fighting wars, working for a living, and making more people. I'm trying to save them, da. They deserve better. Who says so? I looked at my dad. He had never said something like that to me. Then again, he had never complained about his lot in life, difficult as it must have been to accept. My strange rebirth and appearance at sea during the battle with the Hangs had gotten back to pretty, and many people thought my family were bad news afterward. My dad stayed, though, despite all that, despite my mistakes. I guess I do. I say so. Okay, boy. He turned away, and we continued on in weary silence. 
I was relieved when we entered the Great Hall, and its magnificence lifted my spirit. The Great Hall was almost a duplicate of a beautiful castle that I had seen in Trelane a long time ago under not-so-pleasant circumstances. I had admired the place despite the horrors that took place there. The hall was nearly fifty feet across, and had a large round table that I had recreated from the stories of Arthur's knights. The table was oak, and had an engraving of each row with its name underneath, and another sphere for home alongside them. A large iron candelabra hung on a chain ten feet above the table. It had flickering candles that never burned down. There were several sets of polished wooden doors attached to the room that led away to various towers and facilities. Above each set of doors was a tall window that led light into the hall, through stained glass window panes. On Trelane, those windows depicted various battles and other historical events in the city's history. Here, I had just rendered simple wilderness and nautical scenes that were more aesthetic, and cast vivid colors across the room. It was sunset, and the hall was covered in vibrant hues that belonged at the end of a brush in the hand of a much more talented artist than I. All the same, it was a happy accident of time and the quality of light that made me smile. Come on, Mom, you've got to see! It's amazing! I heard Flynn, and the door directly across from us opened. Flynn was practically dragging Casey to have a look. She had an apron on, and her dark hair was tied up in the back. My heart leapt to see her, as she came to the halls, the warm, rich colors slid across her skin. Okay, Flynn, I see it, she said, putting her arm around him. I walked over and put my arm around them both. He found you, I see. He's getting good at that. She nodded and looked up at the light. Kinda reminds me of Ashia's sunset. Light was different there than it is here. Looks like late summer sun there, almost fall. We stood there for a moment, looking up at the light as it moved slowly across the halls. My dad came up beside me and hugged my arm. This is a wee tender moment, Mickey. But I'm starving. You think all you old men know is how to eat, she said, poking at him. Oh, a lifetime of experience, love, he replied, patting his stomach. Well then, maybe Flynn can help me finish cooking while you two join Harcourt in the scent room, she said, taking Flynn's hand. I'd hate for you to waste away. You didn't have to cook tonight, you know. I could have summoned up something. At this point, that old man. Besides, you don't know where your summoned food has been, Mick. Mm, okay, true enough, but I rarely think about it. I mean, it's not like I get it poisoned. Food for thought, she said, winking at me as she led Flynn into the other room. We took the hint and went through another pair of doors into the sitting room. Harkold had pulled up a chair by the fire and was sipping on a large glass of red wine. He hoisted his glass to me as we came in. Evening, patron, he said, sipping on his wine. I made a mock bow to Harkold and moved to my favorite chair in front of the roaring fire. Dad sat down in a chair beside Harkold. He gripped Harkold by the arm and laughed. Landed on your feet, haven't you, you old bugger? Harkold smiled and put his feet up on the ottoman. A man could get used to such things, Gavin, he replied, passing a glass of red wine to Dad. My dad took a drink, sighed, and passed it back. He then pulled out his pipe and began to stuff it with tobacco from his shirt pocket. I took out my own, a beauty from Pretty. It had crackling all along the finish around the draft, and was still in good shape. It was one of the items that I could never simply just replace. I took a pinch of tobacco from my own shirt pocket and stuffed my pipe. Like father, like son. I lit mine with a flick of energy and took a deep draft. Very soon the room was hazy with smoke, and we were all sitting a little lower in our chairs, watching the fire dance. It was my habit to sit here at the end of the day, as it had been since I brought Hearth into existence. Where Father's throne once sat, the source of all energy flowing in from all the worlds was now the hearth within her. The fire always burned within it, and I sat there at night drinking in its power. Only I could tap into it, as I was the caretaker of the worlds. I found it hard to sleep sometimes after absorbing all those energies. 
Every part of my body was charged. My mind raced with ideas, revelations that kept me occupied until late into the night. I was lost for a moment. Harkold broke the uncomfortable silence. And how does my world fare, patron? It will be a very long time before Seahold or Barome will have the materials to fight the war they so long for. Harkold raised his eyebrows. Calm yourself, my friend. I didn't have to harm anyone to stop them. Thank you. All in a day's work. Make yourself comfortable for a few days until things settle down. I regret being away from my people for so long, but I will respect your wishes. Good, I replied, puffing on my pipe. I will show you to the guest quarters after dinner, which... Flynn popped up from behind the chair and was about to speak when he started waving at the air. Oh, it stinks in here, Dad. Why do you have to do that if it smells so bad? Our laughter followed him out of the sitting room, Flynn waving his hands in the air and scowling at us. I saw Case in the other room waving at me to let everybody know to come. I believe that dinner's ready, I said, rising from my chair. Let's not keep it waiting. I'm starving. I clapped Flynn on the back and sent him along. Dad and Harkold wandered through the hall, gapping away about something or other. I wasn't really listening. The prospect of being interviewed tomorrow was becoming ever so much more real with each second that passed. And I was dreading it. I'd never been that good a public speaker, and as much as Casey and I had rehearsed it all, I still felt that it would be hard not to speak plainly about what was at stake. Today, I turned weapons of war into toys by my will alone, and tomorrow I was going to tell people not to think of me as a god. We are not gods, and that's always what I wanted them to understand about us. It was a fine line, though, and I damn well knew it. Maybe everybody did. Come sit down, leave your chaos for a bit, love, Casey said, taking my hand. She led me to the table, and I sat down at the head. The wonderful smells of the food she prepared filled my nostrils and made my mouth water. I decided to forget about the nonsense tomorrow, at least for a bit. Chapter 4 It's been nearly five years since the shepherds and their leader Mick revealed himself to the world, and therefore ended the era of our ignorance. We learned of all the other worlds that exist like our own, and of the mysterious entity known as Father who created them. From that point on, life has not been the same on any spinning world as each of our civilizations comes to grip with the many religious, scientific, and cultural impacts that such profound revelations were bound to cause. Luckily for us, we had a cadre of heroes— some even say angels, on our side to help us get through it and come out the other side intact. I'm here today with their leader, Mick, who has agreed to this interview. Mick, as we close on the five-year anniversary of your revelation to the worlds, what are your thoughts on the success of your mission here? I shuffled in my seat a bit. The suit I was wearing was tailored for me, but all the same I felt uncomfortable in my own skin. I'd always hated the limelight, even when I was leading men in battle. That, at least, was something I enjoyed. This thing called television was something I truly loathed. I avoided it like the plague, yet here I was spilling my guts behind a camera while there were most useful things I could be doing. Like, well, anything. The host of this public broadcast was a nice enough fellow named Jermaine Gibson, an older man in the business who dressed sharp, was very well spoken, and treated me with respect. So far. Most of what I was going to say here I'd gone through with Casey last night. Hopefully Jermaine wasn't going to ambush me. But it had happened in the past. Here we go. I think most people would agree with me in saying that we've done a good job protecting the world since we took over. 
Poverty and crime are on the wane in most modern cities. And the wars fought over resources, and in the name of religious intolerance, have all but ceased. I think you could call that a win. That is the consensus of most of the worlds, including your own world of Avalon. How do you respond, though, to the critics who say that you've been focused on some worlds too much, while others have needed your assistance? Here we go. I kept calm, just as we had rehearsed, and just answered the question. New Haven, a hundred years ago, was swung about on its axis by an unknown force, resulting in a devastating shift in the poles and was laid to waste. My wife's world, Ashia, suffers from continual droughts because of the lack of fresh water and the only habitable lands. Trelane? Well, I'm sure most people know what happened to Trelane, as many generous worlds have opened their doors to refugees from that world. What I'm getting at here is this. We are obligated to help the worlds that have suffered the most, and continue to do so. While some places have experienced very little in the way of catastrophe, others have experienced nothing but. Even with our powers, it takes time and effort to fix that damage, if ever. But isn't this just another part of the normal cycle of existence? As many scientists and philosophers have been quoted as saying, even your fellow shepherd, Henry, said something similar last week. I trust Mick to do what he thinks is best. But we can't be everywhere at once. We're not gods. This at least I was prepared to answer. After about an hour or so of cursing Henry's name and his lack of tact, Casey talked me down from the ledge. His attitude bothered me a lot lately. He seemed to have lost his taste for the work we were doing, and had spent more and more time in his facility and home. I could understand it losing sight of what mattered, considering how strained things had been before yesterday between Casey and I, but I felt obligated to do what I could, and with damn good reason. Henry was right about one thing, Germain. We're not gods. Let me tell you about gods. They're bastards. Father let all of this happen to the worlds he created in order to develop a companion for himself, a single entity like himself to make the years endurable. Billions died across the worlds, and the survivors struggled, never knowing why. You'll remember that I told all of you about this when we revealed ourselves to you. We're not God or angels or anything mythical like people have come to think of us as. We're people with extraordinary power. Power we didn't ask for, but power which we were born with, and he used to help everyone we can. There are 15 worlds out there, and four of us to turn the tide and prevent the big stuff from wiping up people who shouldn't have been put in harm's way in the first place. That was Father's gift to the worlds. Calamity. I was nearly out of my seat and on my feet. Damn it. I wasn't supposed to make this a bloody soapbox. <sighs> I eased back into the chair and ran my fingers down the front of my jacket. I just so wanted to disappear in a blur of green light right now, leaving the impression on my finger waving in the air as I vanished. Since we're talking about Father, Mick... Is there any rumor to the truth that you, yourself, replaced Father in his role as leader? That you, in fact, possessed the power he had? This was something that I had never revealed to the general public. There were a handful of times when we were trying to prevent disasters in the world that I used a measure of power beyond anything that any of us had demonstrated. I was smart about it, making it seem as if the disaster had abated on its own. There was an earthquake that suddenly slowed to slight tremors and abated, a comet that missed its mark after hitting the atmosphere or flood whose waters had been mitigated by a change in the direction of the winds. These were all the flukes that, had they happened while not in my presence, would have been counted as such. But someone was catching on to what was really happening. And that wasn't good. They must never know for sure. I smiled and rubbed my chin. Would a god have as many gray hairs and worry lines as I have? Germain chuckled as the camera zoomed in on my face, and I held up my open hand to point out all the places where I had aged. This is the only god I believe in. A steaming cup of coffee appeared in my hand, and I took a sip and toasted the audience. Germain laughed. 
Luckily, it's plentiful, and I never pay a dime for it. There was laughter from a few people on the set. Mission accomplished. The truth is, Jermaine, that I wish I had that kind of power. The best that I and the other shepherds can do is keep watching, and do our best to make sure that the world keeps spinning. That's what we came here to do, and what we'll keep doing for as long as we can. Jermaine smiled slyly, and raised a quizzical eyebrow at me. He knew that he wasn't going to get me to answer him directly about the rumors of my status as supreme being. He abandoned his attempt to corner me and went on to ask all kinds of fluff questions about Casey and Flynn, about home and the reconstruction of Trelane. This was what I had prepared for, and I sipped my coffee as I answered, as charmingly as I could, about my home life. I really wasn't overjoyed about going into detail about such things, but it was better than pushing me to the point of showing Jermaine what a god could do when properly annoyed. God. <laughs> After another twenty minutes, the show was over. I breathed a sigh of relief. Jermaine got up from his chair and extended his hand to me. Ah, listen, Mick, I just wanted to thank you for... I shook his hand, and sifted through his thoughts to find the source for the rumors. After a couple seconds, I found it. It was from an anonymous informant here on Caledon, someone claiming to have seen me hold back a falling building during the earthquake two years ago. But that was Deku. I remembered that well. Someone was trying to stir up trouble. I planted suspicion and doubt around the memory of it in Jermaine's head, and inserted a subtle desire to ignore such rumors in the future. I didn't have time to make him trust me. This was easier. I let go of his hand. Oh, you're very welcome, I replied. Thanks for having me. Jermaine blinked and smiled, unaware of what had happened. I waved goodbye to the rest of the crew and made my way out of the studio to the limo waiting up back. I came out of the studio and stepped out into the alley. Noel, my driver, was standing by the window having a smoke. He was a short man in his thirties with short curly black hair, round face, and a little bit of a gut, although he carried it rather well. He was quick-witted and always a little twitchy. I had met him on the docks of Trelane in my first week or so there. He was one of the few survivors that had witnessed the whole war with Manon, and understood who and what I was. I had hired him on to drive for me after finding me in the rubble of the city. Most of the refugees from Trelane had already been transported to other worlds by that time because of the dangerous creatures still running around in the city, but Noel had stayed. He told me that he could stand the monsters and the storms, but he couldn't lose the view of the harbor or little coffee shop that we both used to love. After looking around at the ruins, his ragged clothes, and the steaming cup of homemade brew in his hands, I offered him a place on my staff. It was also a place to live in home, an endless supply of decent coffee. I also told him that we would reclaim Trelane someday. We shook on it, and then we poured his home brew out on the cobbles. It was safe to say that he was a good friend, and we trusted each other. He had picked up his latest bad habit from Henry. It made him very twitchy. He sighed as I came out, and was about to stamp out a smoke when I shook my head. He seemed relieved, and opened the door for me. It's okay. I'm not quite ready to head out yet. Don't suppose you were watching that the monitors behind the set? Eh, that good? I thought it went well. Do you want my opinion? Now it was my turn to sigh. <sighs> Go for it. Noel had an odd habit of standing with his feet spread wide apart when he wanted to talk out something that he'd been considering for a bit. I hadn't decided if it was to relax his stance because he was going to be at it for a while, or some kind of bloody oratory thing from Trelane. In my mind, I saw a man with an axe standing over a thick block of wood ready to go to work. Well, you know, for all your power, boss, you can't control what people think or how they see you. Considering what I'd just done, I kind of chuckled a little bit at that. You want them to see you as a regular guy just doing his job, but you forget that to most people what you do verges on the miraculous. You cover it up well, like it was a magic trick. Then you open up another portal to another world next to stage right. No matter what you tell people about your origins, they still have the evidence right in front of their eyes. 
You do things that people have only heard about in stories about mythical heroes, gods. What else are they supposed to think? You have a point, but I hate to be thought of as a god or anything like that. There's a big damn difference between what I do and what Father did. I actually give a shit about regular people. So what? You can fly. People have seen you fly, Mick, and there's nothing more likely to make people believe in heroes and gods than that. Haven't you ever read a comic book? Yeah, yeah, I've read a comic book. Avalon was completely bereft of culture, Noel. I never read about a man who could fly, though. Oh, it's all there. How about angels? Did Avalon not have the Bible? I guess, but I never read it. People used to come around to our house in pretty wanting money, but we were pretty poor. I do know what an angel is, though. That seems to be a theme in a lot of the cultures through the worlds. I think Father might have planted stories like that so people wouldn't be so scared if they saw a shepherd. Minus the wings, they are quite imposing in all that armor. Yeah, Noel said, stamping out his smoke. If that's true, Father didn't do you any favors. Maybe you guys shouldn't call yourselves shepherds anymore. You missed the part where it's been five years? I got into the limo. Noel closed the door and started up the car. Where to? Not sure. Let me check where Flynn and my father have got to. I reached into my jacket and pulled out the smooth bronze disc on a leather cord. As I touched it, I could feel it hum sympathetically with my own power. Flynn, I said, holding the medallion. The contact was nearly instantaneous. Dad? It was eerie. Give him a couple years and Flynn would be sounding like my echo. Hi, son. We're done at the studio. Where are you and your grandfather? Ah, that big market, Flynn replied, sounding a little unsure. The one uh, near that train station. Yeah, that's what Grandpa says. I should have known. There were lots of museums, libraries, restaurants, and everything else under the sun of Caledon, and my father took Flynn to a dusty flea market that even the locals avoided. So, of course, my dad went there. Are you guys about done? Flynn murmured something in the background. There was a weird crackle of energy as my father made contact with me. No, we're not, Mickey. You can pop about all you want when you will, but this is my time to be about. Join us, why don't you? You okay with that, Flynn? Yeah, Dad. Okay, be there in ten. I released the medallion. Noel turned back to me, a grin on his face. Where to? I laughed and scratched my chin. Just drive, wise ass. Chapter 5 The Gramblin' Market was a glorified collection of antiques, oddities, or just plain junk. Caledon allowed it to exist because it supposedly gave the place a sense of history and nostalgia. I understood that, but at the same time I was always very leery of looking through it all. I once picked up a book about philosophy and spiritual awareness that was dead wrong about almost everything, considering all that I had learned since becoming the patron. I hadn't inherited all that Father knew. But I knew enough about the worlds to understand that regular people didn't influence their own reality through positive thought, and sure as hell weren't the masters of their own destiny. Heaven was a joke, and hell was an experiment designed by Father to fulfill his own goals and ambitions. When you died, you went to a place, best non-discussed. There were dark places in this realm, where pieces of Father's kingdom still remained, and I was loath to disturb their slumber unless I really needed to do so. But today was not a day to be thinking about the past. Today was about the future. We pulled up close to the gates of the market. I use the term gates loosely. Whoever owned the market had made the gates look like old-style hitching posts nailed together with tall timbers to give it a rustic feel. The last time we were here, Casey had taken one look at the posts and just shook her head. 
There was the old west of this world, and the real west of Casey's beleaguered world rarely did they meet, with the memories of my wife's rugged upbringing. Gramblins was spelt in huge letters across a wooden sign over the entrance, and some genius had, I hoped, put some rounds through the sign. I was getting a lot of attention as people in the market and the street turned to give it a look over. Flynn and Dow will probably want to browse some more, Noel. Are you okay to stay here until we get back? Oh yeah, I've done my time in places like this in Trelane, and I didn't exactly love it back then. Knock yourself out, boss. Thanks. I got out and took in the fresh air. I was about to head over to the gate when I heard the driver's window roll down. Boss? What's up? You think any of these people watch television? Like, lately? I looked around and became very aware that a lot of people were looking at me with some measure of recognition. I am an idiot. And here I was in the same bloody suit that I wore on the show. <sighs> I'll be fine. I think I can handle a few locals, Noel. Some of them have probably seen my face before, you know. If not, they sure have now. Be careful, boss. No hero stuff, eh? I nodded and saluted him. You bet. I walked over to the gate and walked past a small crowd of people who seemed to look away from me as I went by them, as if they didn't think I noticed. It had always been weird being among people who knew who I was. I seriously doubted that everyone across all the worlds could pick me out of a crowd. But when I did encounter those who could, it was as if they didn't want to look me in the eye or didn't know what to say. As far as I was concerned, I was just a guy who lucked into his power, and through some strange set of circumstances inherited the job of taking care of these worlds. My public image was a problem, though, just as Noel said. How could anybody think of me as just one of the guys when I could fly, transform matter into different forms, and teleport objects to and from myself just by thinking about it? That set me apart, and it always would until the day I died. I saw my father standing at his stall that Flynn was browsing and waved at him to catch his eye. He saw me and tapped Flynn on his shoulder, pointing me out as I made my way through the market towards them. Flynn met me halfway. He was grinning so broadly it made my face hurt. You gotta come over and check these kites, Dad. I've never seen anything like them. Anywhere. He was talking to me and walking backwards towards the stall. He nearly tripped over someone, so I put my arm around him while we walked. Hello <laughs> to you too, Flynn. He was really taken with a large stall that had lucked out and sat smack in the middle of the crossroads. It had the same rustic tone that the rest of the place seemed to keep with, but that's where the similarities ended. The stall was marked with the painted sigil of a green dragon rising into the air, its wings spread wide in a welcoming embrace. Around it were the lesser flying things that the stall was pushing, magnificent kites of vibrant hues and varied design, with checkered patterns and swirls that dazzled the eye. I only saw a few such things growing up when we visited islands that had more land, and calmer winds. My jaw must have dropped, because Flynn's eyes lit up with my reaction. So, which one's yours? Flynn grinned and pointed to a large, dark green one shaped like a snake with golden eyes and a long tail of streaming ribbons tied together in an elaborate cat's cradle design that kept them aloft and apart. It was magnificent. Good choice, I said, looking around at all the others. Do you two have any money left? Doc cleared his throat and patted a bag he was carrying. It recognized the shape of something long inside. I saw the head of a pommel sticking out. Was that a real sword? Casey was going to kill both of us for that. I see. Well, let's see what I've got. The woman running the stall had been eyeing me closely since I joined Flynn and Da, smiled at me as I rummaged around in the pockets of my jacket. I really didn't want to use my power to make more money for Caledon than I already had. That could be very bad for places that originally ran on cash, or so I'd learned. She was blonde in her mid-forties or so, an attractive woman in her prime. She shook her head at me. Oh, I can't take your money, patron. I'm sorry? 
You don't know me, do you? I looked at her. Uh, yeah, there was something familiar. You're not from Caledon, are you? She shook her head. Trelane, born and raised. My husband and me left after the war. We saw all that you and your friends did to try to stop them. We hope some day to return. How can I take money from the liberator of our homeland? Trelane was the first world I had traveled to after I gained my power. So much had happened there that I felt a strange tie with all of those who once lived there. You're very kind. I wish there was something more we could have done. She smiled and she looked over at Flynn. And this is your son? That's right, I said, putting my arm around Flynn. And that's my father. Da smiled at the woman and hoisted the bag a bit higher on his shoulder. You should have mentioned your famous father, she said to Flynn. Let me get your kite for you. Flynn looked at me and I raised my eyebrows. The woman was about to drag out a ladder to get the kite, but I ported it into her hands instead. She started a bit and looked over at me. I winked at her. Let me wrap it for you, she said, laying the kite on the table. As she was wrapping it in tissue paper, the sounds of the market were temporarily drowned out by the roaring of engines. Flynn spun around and grabbed at my sleeve. I turned around to see what he was looking at. Five motorcycles, the ones built for really high speed, were racing down the road that led to the market. The riders were dressed in matching black leather outfits with white helmets. Wow, Flynn said. Yeah, wow, I replied, watching them do a complicated turn in the middle of the street. That takes some control. They parked along the road, some distance from the limo, and sat there. The one in the lead got off for a moment and walked inside the gates. The woman at the stall handed my father Flynn's kite, which he tucked in the bag very carefully. He then handed the bag over to Flynn while he rummaged around in his pockets. He nearly jumped out of his skin when the woman started screaming. I looked up and watched as the biker pulled something short and sharp out of the stomach of a young man standing by the gates and let him drop to the ground. The other onlookers started to scatter as the gutted victim started screaming in agony. I heard Flynn cry out. Damn it, he saw that. I turned to see his face go white with shock. I grabbed him and tucked him behind me. Stay still, son. The biker looked towards us and stepped over the young man. The blade in his hand was black with blood. He raised it. It had began to ripple in glossy blackness and lengthen, curving slightly to a point. It couldn't be. That's not possible. I whispered, mostly to myself. The biker pulled off his helmet and tossed it to the ground. Beneath it was the face of the madman, the dark shepherd himself, Manon. He smiled at me and shook his head. Tell Noel to gun it, Da, and get back to home. He looked back at me, a puzzled look on his face. Then we were both gone, ported away by me to the limo. Damn it. I'd used too much power today to just send them home. I didn't expect anything like this. Hearthblade was instantly in my hand, and it glowed with power. In a sense, it had become part of me over the years, and I think it reflected my general demeanor when it was pulled. In New Haven, I was in control of my feelings, but I felt stirred up inside as our old foe returned at last. It was fear I felt now, fear for my family and friends, fear for the people that he would destroy if given the chance. The boy he stabbed had stopped screaming now, and Manon grinned in the silence between us, and he saluted me with his blade. The limo took off, and he smiled even wider. The other bikers revved up and followed it. No. Manon strode forward towards me and raised his blade. Thank you all for listening and supporting this podcast. 
Remember to join me next week for another episode of The Lost Tribe, Darkest Hour. And remember, stay safe and stay healthy.